Welcome to another chapter podcast with your hosts, Claire and Rebecca. Do you love books? Well, you've come to the right place. Join us as we discuss all things books. Welcome to chapter 14 of another chapter at the podcast. Today's guest is someone who has excelled in the area of historical fiction. Her back catalogue includes wonderful titles such as The Bird in the Bamboo Cage and her debut, The Girl Who Came Home, which was a New York Times bestseller, an amazing feat for a debut novel. She has also co-authored three books with Heather Webb, all historical fiction as well. And her most recent novel was just released this month and it is called The Last Lifeboat. So today's guest is Hazel Gaynor. And we are very excited to chat to her about reading, her writing process, and of course, her new novel, which we were lucky enough to attend the launch of recently. The Last Lifeboat is inspired by a remarkable true story where a young teacher evacuates children to safety across perilous waters in a moving and triumphant novel. And I think both myself and Claire can absolutely agree that that is the case. There were smiles, there were tears there was plenty of conversation had about this book and we think if you are maybe not normally a fan of historical fiction this is an excellent place to start so we hope you enjoy our interview with hazel Welcome, Hazel, as our official guest for chapter 14 of the podcast. I speak for myself and Claire when I say we are absolutely thrilled to have you on. For anyone that maybe doesn't know you, doesn't know your work, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I love I love listening to your podcast and hearing what everybody else does, how they do it. <laughs> picking other people's brains. So it's lovely to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm Hazel Gaynor. I write uh, historical fiction, which is based on events from the past, but with my own imagined fictional uh, interpretation of those events and with my own fictional characters, often on the page. I tend to write from the 20th century. So sort of the late 1800s into mostly the 1900s um, and the latest I've written is in the 1950s so that's the sort of historical era if you like that I write in Um, yeah and I've been writing since well 2012 was my first self-published book and I now have 10 books to my name but as you said in your intro I can't claim all of the words in some of them because they're co-written with my dear friend and author in the States, Heather Webb. So I have a really sort of interesting working schedule. Uh, Sometimes I'm on my own. Sometimes I'm with Heather. Sometimes I'm with my cat. (laughs) So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a really fascinating 10 years or so since I started. Wow. That's some achievement. <laughs> well, we keep we we keep trying. <laughs> yeah. 
Is that right? <laughs> so to get started, and I know that we briefly touched on this last week um, when we met you, but can you tell us what your earliest memories of reading are? Yeah, so I was very lucky. I was given books from a very young age, and I know not every child is. So I remember reading. I think I, I was a reader I could read before I started primary school. And I have very clear memories of reading big kind of hardback picture books to my mom and dad, sort of tucked up on the sofa or tucked up on their bed, reading to them. There was a particular book, had lots of teddy bears in. I think my dad probably still has it in the attic somewhere. Um, So I was very lucky to have that love of reading I suppose, given to me at a really young age. And then through the school years, we had a really lovely uh, local library. I grew up in Yorkshire, a little market town uh, called Driffield in East Yorkshire. And there was a lovely library and my mum used to take me and my sister and we would, I think you were allowed three books at a time. So we used to carefully choose the three books and you'd get your little ticket and get it stamped and be so excited to get home. And so, yeah, books were... I don't we didn't have a huge amount of books at home but there was always access to books at the local library and in the school library so I just I was always in my bed with a torch under the covers when I was supposed to be <laughs> asleep at reading uh so I just have grown up with stories which is it's a real privilege I understand now as a as a parent and to be able to do that for your kids so yeah books were always there I love that. I love that question because everyone's is so different. And I love that the library was a big part of it as well, because for some people, it's such like I would have gone to the library a lot as a child as well. And it was just such a natural part of my childhood. And again, I realize now it was because while we had children's books in the house, we didn't have that many and definitely couldn't have been expecting my family to just be buying the amount that I was going through. Um, But for some people, then the library, it wasn't a thing when they were kids. And even now, you know, some people don't use it as much as others. And so it's lovely to hear it being such an integral part mm-hmm. of someone's life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, just while we're on the topic, what was your favorite book as a child? Yeah, so I had um I had lots and, and we were talking about this the other night, and I I always well, I have a kind of little dilemma between my favorite bears. So is it Winnie the Pooh or Paddington? <laughs> I kind of grew up with them both. I think I, I I just loved the Winnie the Pooh stories and I bought a a box set when we were on holiday in the Cotswolds. I think I must have had like some holiday money from my nana or something. And I bought this box set and it was just the most exciting thing I'd ever owned. And I still have it. And I I just those stories and those little characters and that world they lived in I just adored it and then of course I got into stuff like Black Beauty and um Jill's Pony Club and Mallory Towers and all of that good stuff I just I loved all of that I wanted to play lacrosse and um, (laughs) go wherever they went swimming off the rocks somewhere (laughs) it was just so vivid wasn't it um so yeah I I really loved all those I suppose classic kids books really child of the 70s (laughs) (laughs) um but they're lovely and especially the fact that you bought one yourself and you you're saying it's still it's still in existence is fabulous like it's you know as 
it, it's so lovely to have it to kind of even just as a memento for yourself but to pass on then as if you wish um what book would you mine oh it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> they've got their own yeah. <laughs> um what book would you say has had the biggest impact on your life and why would it be one of those childhood books or maybe another one as you grow up yeah i i always struggle with this question because i i think in a way every book I've read, you know, in terms of ending up being a writer has probably had an impact. And, you know, those times where you just need to hide away with a book, mm. whether you had a fallout with a boy you like at school or you're <laughs> feeling teenage angst or whatever it is. So there's lots of different stages in my life. I remember reading the Harry Potter books when I was an adult commuting on the trains in London in that phase of my life. And, um, yeah, I think it, it, it's hard to pin one down, but I think probably in terms of my ending up writing, I read uh, Philippa Gregory's The Other Berlin Girl. Um, was that out in the late 90s? And that was the first time I'd read history in the form of a novel. Um, it's about Henry VIII's you know, infamous marriage with Anne Boleyn, mm-hmm. but it's really about her sister, Mary Boleyn, and just that whole concept of the other Boleyn girl, who's the other one? Yeah. And I, I I, just felt this was so fascinating. And I read that book and it's written really immersively. And it's as if you're walking through Hampton Court Palace and you can hear the swish of the dresses and feel the the candles fluttering and it's just it to me opened up this whole world which I now know is called historical fiction but at the time I thought was just a cracking read about Henry VIII and his mistresses and (laughs) I think that really opened up a world of historical writing to me so that and uh, Tracy Chevalier's Girl with a Pearl Earring did similarly yeah Yeah, that's that's in my like top five books ever I adore her writing especially yeah yeah and just genius to take something from history and you know there we are a classic Dutch masters painting but who's the person in that painting I mean that's that's where the genius lies so I think those two have really inspired me to understand how to write historical fiction and and that you can make up bits of history yeah yeah so I'll say those <laughs> they're very good ones I was wondering actually what books had kind of sparked that in you that love of the historical fiction and there I haven't read the other book Boiling Girl but I've we've um, both read Girl with a pearl earring. I, I actually did it as part of my leaving cert. Oh wow! <laughs> years ago, Brilliant. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's Can't an interesting one too. I like again the same thing, like going into something that you know is fact, but building this whole world around it that yeah. could have been quite a possibility. Exactly, and it's yeah. it's it's. I suppose that you know it's it's fiction, so you can kind of do what you want with that. And mm-hmm. I heard Tracy Chevalier speak about that book at an event at the V&A Museum in London. So I think it was its twentieth anniversary a few years ago, and I first of all couldn't believe it was that old, uh, <laughs> or that I was. But she was <laughs> she was absolutely fascinating, and she wrote that book in nine months wow. because she said what she had this idea for it, and then. Just after she'd started writing it, she discovered she was pregnant. So she she had to get it finished before her oh. baby was due. So she wrote, she wrote it really quickly. And 
and it's not a big book, but it just yeah. a, a slimmer book doesn't mean it hasn't taken because there's so much research in that. And I I just think mm-hmm. there's some energy in that book, and it, it kind of didn't surprise me that it, she'd written it quickly because you kind of feel that in it. Fascinating, yeah, really clever. And would she be an autobiography for you? Have you read an awful lot of her books, or do you have other authors that would be your, yeah. your go-to's? Yeah, she would. Certainly her historical, uh, so The Virgin Blue, um, Remarkable Creatures, I think is one of my um, books I would often say to people to read. It's one that sort of got, I think, taken over a bit by Girl with a Pearl Earring. But Remarkable Creatures is about Mary Anning, who discovered the first intact ichthyosaur, I can never say that, and fossil on the Dorset coast in the 1800s and you know, no woman had any business doing anything scientific at that time. And it's about her struggle to be taken seriously amongst all these very stuffy men at the British Museum. Um, And, you know, the sea, she sells seashells on the seashore. That's about Mary Anning selling her little um, ammonite fossils that she found on the uh, Jurassic coast down in Dorset. And Mary and Anning's story is told in Remarkable Creatures by Tracy, Tracy Chevalier. And it's just fab. Um, so yeah, she's really an author by author for me, as is Rose Tremaine. She's another amazing historical writer. Um, Maggie O'Farrell now would be as well. Mm-hmm. And Kate Atkinson, since I read Life After Life and just absolutely rave about it. So yeah, they would be my sort of whatever they're writing, I'll I'll buy it. Yeah. And do you stick an awful lot though to reading historical fiction? Like, is that your favourite genre or do you, do you kind of branch out for a break? Yeah, I mean, I, my, I'm really drawn to history. I'm just always fascinated by the, what, where's the true story in this? Or mm-hmm. if, if it's not even based in, in truth, but it's just set in a period of history. Um, I'm just, I'm massively drawn to that. But I, I like a little palate cleanse every now and again. So um, I'll, I'll read a, a nice romantic book every now and again. I've been getting into Emily Henry's books. I really oh, like yeah, those, yeah. Um, Book Lovers and uh, Happy Places, her new one at the minute. Um, Taylor Jenkins Read, I just yeah. adored Daisy Jones and the Six. And uh, I have Carrie Soto is Back, which is based on tennis, which I love. Mm. So, yeah, they're, they're sort of, um, they're different uh, so I, I do. And then, of course, I'm, I'm very good friends with uh, Catherine Ryan Howard, who writes terrifying thrillers. So I, I read them every now and again <laughs> as well. <laughs> as a palate cleanser. <laughs> well, yeah, terrifying. <laughs> Speaking of Catherine Ryan Howard, can I ask you a question that came in to us? Um, there we go. Let me find it here now. Is it a question from her? <laughs> no, 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 no. It came into us. <laughs> Um, how did you and Carmel and Catherine first meet? Were you <laughs> authors that met each other first or were you friends that met each other first? No, well, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? So myself, Carmel Harrington and Catherine Ryan Howard sort of move as a pack now. If you get one of okay. us, you get all three of us, which we saw very much so the other night when they ended up signing copies of my new book, <laughs> The Last Lifeboat. They actually had stickers with signed yeah. by the author's friend. But we... Um, <laughs> Really, (laughs) they're so bold. So Catherine and I met many years ago at a writer's uh, 
workshop that was being run by what is now called writing.ie, run by Vanessa O'Loughlin, who writes as Sam Blake, but at the time was known as Inkwell Writers. And I was not long out of my totally different corporate life and trying to figure out if I could write and what I could write and how do you write. Um, And I ended up on a workshop with Catherine Ryan Howard, who was just writing a memoir about working as a rep in Disney uh, World in Florida um, and was self-publishing. And we just connected, hit it off. And we used to go to events together, just not go together, but end up there together. So we we got to know each other quite well. Um, And then Carmel, Carmel and I have this weirdly similar path. So Carmel and I both self-published our first books in the same year. We didn't know each other at all. Uh, I read an article about her in a paper and sent her a message on LinkedIn, I think it was at the time, and said, oh, you're published. Because she was then published by HarperCollins and so was I. So I said, oh, I'm with HarperCollins as well. So we got to know each other and then... The three of us. So I think I thought it was the matchmaker of of all three of us. Um, And I think, you know, you just, we're so lucky to have each other. You you need that little gang in your corner. Um, And, you know, we often laugh about, we we would have 10 more books written if we didn't WhatsApp each other all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But it's that water cooler thing in an office that, you know, you don't have when you're working at home on your own. And we, you know, we, we vent, we celebrate, we advise, um, we encourage. So it's really just this incredible, crazy friendship <laughs> that developed over the years. And neither of us knew each other before, and neither of us knew a soul in the writing industry oh. either. So I think we clung, we clung desperately <laughs> to each other when we found oh. each other and haven't let go. So I think we're stuck with each other now. It's lovely. And it's it's really nice because even hearing the way that Catherine described your little trio at the launch of your book, The Last Lifeboat, it was just really nice to hear that, to, to hear and see people supporting each yeah. other and women supporting women and helping each other out as opposed to k- keeping ideas back from people yeah. just in case they'd, they'd yeah. work for themselves. <laughs> so it was actually really lovely. I think we all, Rebecca, yeah. I think everybody was like, oh my God, that's really <laughs> nice. Yeah. Joe, we... We wouldn't know, obviously, what it's like to be writing and then to have friends that are authors. Do you talk about what you're doing? Yeah. Do you, know, do you try and keep your cards close to your chest or whatever? But clearly not, not at all. Either. No, I mean, we, we know each other's books inside out and back to front. You know, yeah. It's lovely to be able to say. I think, do you know what? I've really, the whole writing community in Ireland, I think it, it's incredible. You know, and again, saw that at the launch the other night, the number of writers who'll mm. go and support yes. another writer. Yeah. yeah, And I think, you know, you want, because you understand what it's taken to get to the stage where the book is actually now out there. Um, and there's a lot that goes on quietly in the background and that's you know, rightly yeah. so but I think because we get that as other writers and the, you know I, I it used to surprise me because I was a bit like surely if you talk to people about what you're writing that, that everybody will you know sort of take each other's ideas and it's it's really not like that at all and of course there's room for all of us you know there's yeah. room for everyone to be successful and like you say mm. women supporting women yeah. um it's it's really quite a powerful thing I think I particularly in Ireland, a lot of people I connect with in the UK and America, they comment on it. It's really, really great to see. It's not this 
hideous backstabbing thing that I think people think it might be. It's very encouraging because we we commented on that as well last night. We we were looking around going, oh, that's Sheila Flanagan there and that's Claudia Carroll and there's Andrea Mara. Look, we were were like, oh, this is amazing. You know, it was so lovely that so many other authors came out as well. Um, And everyone was just so happy to be there and so happy for you and so lovely about the book. Um, it was it was just such a positive evening. It was so, so lovely. Um, so it's yeah. nice. It's nice to have that to celebrate all of the hard work. Absolutely. Um, it is. And, you know, it's it, it's you know, it's it's people like yourselves coming to that event, like Claudia, like Sheila, like Andrea, like everybody. That's what makes it. A, a lovely evening you know so as I said you know I, I had this awful fear I would be standing there talking to my my husband <laughs> <laughs> as it turned out I wasn't so you know it, all, it was all good but yeah no it, it's it's a fabulous community and it's um it, it really does uplift inspire you know we're, we're all watching what everybody's achieving and of course we all want to achieve the, the best and yeah. it's inspiring when somebody does that and you're like okay great well let's let's all get there then so yeah it's, it's really it can good. be done which is nice yeah. <laughs> 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 um is there oh, i i presume sorry no because again my my connection kind of came and went there again um have you asked what is an underappreciated book that you love? We didn't, but I think I've kind of mentioned it because I mentioned uh, Remarkable Creatures by Tracy Chevalier, oh, which yes. is, it's a quieter yeah. book. It's, yeah, it's quieter book because everybody talks about Girl with a Pearl Earring. And I, I just, I think it's a fan. If you like historical novels yeah. um, or dinosaurs or science. I was just about um, to say that's the one about the fossils and the beach, yes. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I have that so, somewhere here. Yeah. It's it, just brilliant. I, I read it a few years after Pearl Earring and I, I'd put it up there with it, you know, and it, it doesn't really get talked about as much. There's so many books, isn't there, that are just quiet, yeah. brilliantly quiet books. And I actually read a book last year called A Terrible Kindness by Joe Browning Rowe. Um, it was her debut and it's about, I don't know if you know about this awful tragedy in the 1960s in Aberfan in Wales where um, a coal mine slurry yes. tip fell yeah. onto the yeah. school. And Joe, I've, I had thought many times of writing about that event and I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out a way to do it. Um, I just, it frightened me actually to, to touch on that quite mm. close tragedy and she has done it incredibly, incredibly well. And, and again, you know, it, it's been a very successful book, but it's one I often talk to other people about having read it um, because okay. it just it was just so beautifully done and such a clever uh, piece of fiction, but very sensitively handled, heartbreaking, but done so beautifully. So, yeah, that's that's another one I'd like to mention as well. Yeah. I'm sure we've it's talked about that, Claire, actually, yeah. Have we? I I know that I've watched something before where it focused on a mining community. I think it was a BBC programme or whatever. And they showed um, this kind of happening and mm. the community and the school and the teachers trying to, to save the kids oh, and stuff. Yeah, and yeah, it was it was really difficult to watch that. Um, 
They made they, and then they I covered it in um, the last or one of the episodes of The Crown ah. because the Queen uh, went to Aberfan, but she didn't go mm-hmm. initially. So there was a lot of criticism at, at the time that she hadn't okay. gone to you know offer comfort to the families. Yeah. And said famously, it was one of her biggest regrets that she had taken so long. A matter of days, I think it was. I'm not quite sure the circumstances, but it really uh, tormented her yeah. through her her reign that she she didn't go instantly. Okay. Um, and I, that's what I remember from the program. They they really focused on the fact that they were like, "Where's the Queen? There's nobody here from from the royal family representing." Um, you know, given the the extent of the tragedy yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So, and I think yeah. you know, I, th- I think sometimes we, of course, we you know, sometimes we want to be we want to laugh or we want to watch a romance or read a romance and look at people falling in love. And sometimes we want to be frightened and we pick up a thriller or a horror. And, and sometimes I think we just need to be sad. We now, we need to let ourselves be sad, but also see that human uh, sort of resilience and hope that comes out of tragic events. And, and, you know, I think it's okay to, I don't mind watching something like that. That's mm. it, it's really profound, and it makes you stop and think. What would you do? That's often why I'm driven to write about it. It's hard to read and write about things that are that are sad, based in tragedy. But I think it's yeah. as valuable and important as when we need to have a laugh or when we need yeah. to fall in love. You know, and it's I think done well. It it can be incredibly powerful. Yeah. 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 And what was what was the last book that kept you up late? Well, actually, um, and it's a brilliant book that's out just now, Yellow Face by Rebecca uh, Kwang, which as a writer is just, it's astonishing because it's an absolute warts and all expose of uh, the publishing industry. And it's a literary thriller uh, and it's about stealing somebody's identity. It's about toxic friendships. It's about cancel culture. It's absolutely brilliant. I howled laughing. I was like shocked. Um, it it just totally kept me turning the page. Um, loved, loved, loved it. Um, so that was one I, I read recently. And also a brilliant book. Actually, I'm looking at it on my shelves now. Wayward by Amelia oh Hart. It was her debut. And it's told over, is it told over, over four centuries it's three women from a witch trial, I think, in the 1600s to it might be the 1940s and then oh. contemporary. And it's it's a brilliant, I just, it, it's a fantastic book, brilliant for book clubs. Again, powerful women, w- women's place in history and just really clever. And I, I loved it. That was another one. That, that one sounds up. right up my street, actually. I have the, I have yellow face to read. Yeah, yellow face is great fun. Um, Wayward, I had, you know, it's the author's debut. I knew very little about it. The cover just caught me. I just, I'm very much sucked in by a pretty cover. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's, I've been telling everybody about it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Okay. We must definitely look at that one for even for ourselves. Uh, yeah. Um, so just to, to finish the, the reading portion of our questions, if you could have dinner with three fictional characters, who would they be? Well, if it wasn't Winnie the Pooh, Tigger and Eeyore, uh, <laughs> probably, <laughs> well, they'd be good, wouldn't they? 
Um, I'd actually love uh, Elizabeth Zott from Lessons in Chemistry, which I read recently, Bonnie Garmus. She was brilliant. And her dog, 6.30, so that's two. Um, and probably <laughs> Ursula Todd from Life After Life because she is just – I just can't talk about that book enough, really. But yeah, if it's not the Winnie the Pooh table, then we'll have them and, and see where we go. The kids' table and the adults' table. Yeah, yeah. Have both. Absolutely. Like the wedding. So the last lifeboat was released in the last few weeks and is getting fantastic reviews. Hazel, do you want to talk a little bit about that specifically? Yeah, yeah. So uh, The Last Lifeboat is based on uh, ultimately a decision that parents faced in 1940 in the Second World War um, when it was believed that the Germans were going to invade Britain and that bombs were coming. So parents were given an opportunity to evacuate their children out of Britain. So overseas to Canada, Jamaica, Australia, far, far away or not. You know, it was their decision. And of course, there were risks either side of that decision. So to, t- to take a, a ship across the Atlantic with U-boats, to not know when you were going to see your kid again, mm. when was the war going to end, or to keep, I think the instinct would be to, they're better off with you, uh, but what if the Germans do invade and what if a bomb falls? And it's that it's that question of what would you do? And, you know, I've talked quite a lot about, we, we seem to think that things that have happened in the past happened to people that were in some way prepared for those things to happen. And of course they weren't, but, you know, a mother in 1940 facing that decision was exactly the same as you or I, Um, you know, and it's the unimaginable worst nightmare that of course we all think, Oh, it won't happen. It will never happen to us until it does. Um, And that was the premise of um, the last lifeboat. And again, that's all based in, in fact, and, the tragedy of one of those evacuee ships being torpedoed, um, which resulted in a lifeboat of survivors being lost in the Atlantic, believed to have been lost in the in the sinking of the ship. Um, and it's the human drama that unfolds in the lifeboat with the survivors and back at, in London with the mother who has sent her children on this ship that has been torpedoed and how the emotions and the instinct to fight to survive or fight to discover what's happened to your loved ones kind of takes over. Um, So it was just an incredibly powerful piece of history to find. And that's where my, my pen was drawn this time. And like we mentioned that to you as well, the other evening, like we stopped and well, I definitely, and I know I'm not just speaking for myself in this one, stopped and kind of went, what would we do if we were in the position of the characters? Like I have a two-year-old and I remember sitting on the couch and asking my partner, like, if this happened, what what do you think we'd do? And he was like, it's not going to happen. You know, like, don't be thinking like that because I, I am a catastrophizer and I will think worst case scenario and everything. So he's always going, you're grand, don't worry about it. And I was like, no, but if this happened, like what kind of a decision do you think we would come to? And it just, it was a book that you had to read and put down and have a serious think about because as you said, it's based on factual events. So it really, it's not something that you can just fob off and go, oh, that was awful. You have to actually just sit back and go, gee, what did these people have to do? 
Yeah. And as we said as well, people are still having to make these kinds of decisions, trying to evacuate their, their families for safety and stuff. And it's just, it's harrowing. And how did you come across that story? So I, um, it's funny, I, I was looking particularly for pieces of World War Two that were less well known. And I, I was thinking of writing something about the evacuees, but I felt that that story had maybe been told, um, you know, the sort of children on the train station platforms with their gas masks and heading away from the cities into the British countryside. So I felt that story had maybe been told. Um, and I was reading about these different ministries. I mean, it sounds like something out of Harry Potter, like the Ministry of <laughs> Information and the Ministry of Food and, you know, <laughs> Ministry of Muggles. And I found it was the um, it was a, a piece of information about the Children's Overseas Reception Board, which then raised a flag and was like, overseas? What was that? And it talked about this wave of mass evacuation overseas and these sea evacuees, the sea vacs that were taken away from Britain. And I had never heard of that before. And yeah. that's when I learned about the sinking of the city of Benares, the ship that inspired my fictional ship, the SS Carlisle in the last lifeboat. So yeah, it was just this crazy piece of history that I had never heard about in all of the stuff I've read about the world wars. Um, and that's where I, I went. And did you like... Do you know how some people say that these characters walk into their minds and like upon hearing that piece of fiction, did you instantly kind of ask yourself the question of if I was a mother, what would I have done? Like, did, did these characters come to you or did you sit down and kind of plot out what would be a very interesting way to explore the topic? Well, I knew very quickly I wanted to tell it from two points of view. So I wanted to be in the mm -hmm. lifeboat and in London experiencing the Blitz because I felt that that was a very sort of honest representation of, and also this tension and great mm -hmm. drama in that. You know, so if, if you are seeing things from the point of view of a mother rushing into air raid shelters, not sure what's happened to her children, and then on the other side, we're seeing what's happened or what's happening. And really my character's Alice in the lifeboat. She's a volunteer who has escorted the children. Um, volunteers were recruited to take the kids on these long journeys. Um, so Alice is my character in the lifeboat. Lily is my mother in London in the Blitz. And it's really how these two women, they meet very briefly once, but their whole lives are sort of then interconnected by this one event. Um, and it's how that sort of legacy of, of sliding doors almost, you know, that which direction do you go in yeah. and, and how can that turn your life around? Um, and I knew straight away I wanted to focus on two women's point of view um, and then understand who they were at the point of making that decision to evacuate your children and to volunteer to sail with the evacuee ship. So what made that decision and then how do they react to this tragic event and, and how does that all unfold? So, yeah, I knew that very quickly. They came to me quite formed. That's so interesting because they, they I found them both to be so um, relatable in both senses. So like Alice kind of wanting to nearly for, you know, to, to put a kind of flimsily, if you will, like she wanted a change of scenery and to kind of prove people wrong that she wasn't this safe character. So she was kind of, 
going off to do this as a as a kind of a, an opportunity to prove that she wasn't the safe and reliable person and then for this to be what happened to her was just mm. insane like yeah yeah and very much based in fact i mean the the, the character of mm. alice is based on uh, a lady called mary cornish who was the only woman in the the lost unrecovered lifeboat that yeah. you know then the story unfolds she was a music teacher um who volunteered to to escort the CVAC UEs and she was um awarded an OBE I think um for her part in that whole episode so um, Alice is very much shaped around Mary Cornish and Lily is just entirely fictional she's just someone I suppose who is a, a historical version of me <laughs> you know yeah. imagining life in a, a simple terraced house in London and those communities in mm. London and how communities came together in the war. Uh, I'm from Yorkshire originally. My, my dad has stories of an Anderson shelter in the back garden and all this crazy stuff. So it's, it's in me somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really intrigued as to hear, to hear more about the writing process for you on that. Can you explain to us like, what was the hardest thing about writing that book did you did you have to stick to specifics like does that hold you back when you're writing like having to to base things around something factual can that be restrictive I suppose or well yes and no and I think you know I'm always very conscious that I approach writing my historical novels with a sort of a healthy respect for the fact and for the history but being very mindful of the fact that I'm writing a novel, I'm writing fiction, I'm writing a great story, hopefully. So once I've researched the kind of the event, the era, I have a kind of general understanding of where I am, what are the main concerns, what are the key events. So for me, obviously 1940, this whole evacuation program started because Hitler was in France and he was coming next to England is what was expected. So that's I had to understand whereabouts in the war are we um, what was it like in Britain at the time? And then really I, I just sort of parked that and just let myself write. Um, and if I need to check something, I'll go back and check details, you know, what happened, what sort of bombs were they expecting, um, you know, what advice were the government giving to people. So you can you can add all that texture in. But um, I think first and foremost, I just I want to understand enough so that I can be authentic but then I try not to be sort of hobbled by that and just let myself write. And I can then correct my bloopers um, <laughs> when I'm editing because the first draft really just needs the energy of writing. And then you can go back in and get all technical and, you know, sort of pull out inconsistencies and add in the detail of the era. But it was hard to write the scenes in the lifeboat because obviously you're not moving um, in a setting mm. and, create yeah. drama where there's no change in the sit in the setting obviously lots of most stories people move around even if it's only within their own home they're in a different room they were in the, the lifeboat there's nothing except water and the people they're with so that was a challenge to sustain interest tension yeah. drama in those chapters in the book where essentially nothing much is happening but that's the whole point well a lot's happening sorry but not much is changing and that's the whole point of that sense of helplessness and claustrophobia so yeah that was challenging to 
and to keep it quite tight because I've often written quite big stories where you know I'm talking about years and this was really told over eight days um so that was a that was interesting yeah I loved it actually being a bit sort of more intense like that yeah and the, the tension in it is quite good like you know I found even reading it you were wondering what what could happen in between yeah. these you know two between sorry being lost and being found I suppose like what exactly where are they going yeah. To end yeah and yeah and it's creating those little um everything becomes magnified so even though that you're stuck in this lifeboat every tiny movement uh, that just the the indignity of having to go to the toilet, yeah. you know, ha- everything is magnified in that intense situation. So that's where the the tension and drama came in a, in a really different mm. way. And the sense of cabin fever and everything, like this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> what about like the emotional element of writing the book? Did you find it very? difficult to keep yourself separate from that like it is as we discussed like it is a very I found it a very emotional book how did Mm. you manage to invest yourself so fully in a book like this and manage to hold yourself together on the outside and then go and put the dinner on and clean the toilet (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a weird one isn't it I think I've got better over the years at, at sort of compartmentalizing you know, when I'm, I write when the kids are at school and they're, the kids are older now. So they have a full school day from nine till four. So I get a good chunk of hours where I can be in that emotional mm. uh, drama. But I'm quite good at keeping that on the page. Like I do walk around and I'm thinking about what will a character do next? Or, but I don't, I don't carry the emotion with me when I stop writing. And I think it's just the practical life takes over. I've got to be in a car. I've got to be taking the kids to football training. I've got to get to Aldi, you know. So I think you've got to, it's a job and you've got to park the job. And of course there are scenes where you're sort of quite, you're in it and hours pass um, and you've been caught up in this emotion. And I actually got very emotional when I read at the book launch the other night because I haven't, this book was finished about six months ago and I haven't been in those pages for a while. So when I read that scene and it, that, the, the emotion came back again then. So I was thinking, oh, these children. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I cared for them so deeply. But just, yeah, I think you just have to park it and go and live life and do your your stuff with family and then come back to it. Yeah. I, I love historical fiction stories that are very that are inspired by true events, not just based, we'll say, in a certain era, because like that I went on a bit of a rabbit hole once I'd finished it of trying to find more information about the, the real <laughs> events. And I love that. I love that a book and that your story yeah. can inspire that in in me. And I and I'm absolutely not the only person I'm sure that had that reaction to it mm. as well, which is one of the beauties of historical fiction that you can take the story further yourself yeah. as in you can look into events more and learn more and find out more. And a bit like you finding the story initially, you can find out about things that you never knew or would never have known otherwise, yeah. which is lovely. And actually yeah. I stayed up, I stayed up far too late finishing the book because I just, I was like, I can't, I was like, I can't. <laughs> and then of course I was crying all times. Oh, that's and, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, oh no, sorry. No. <laughs> but that's my job, yeah. you know, to actually, you know, whether if somebody laughs, cries, um, if whatever emotional response, I think 
that's what we aim to do when we're writing is create an emotional response because it to me that means you care so you you care about these people so then you're happy when they fall in love or you're sad when they're hurt or you're afraid for them when somebody's after them you know so that's I think the the skill of a writer is creating yes a believable plot um, and an authentic setting but to create people that are made up that we really care about it's like a great anything we watch Mm. you know tv series movies anything we read to create that connection to something that is imagined is that's when I think it the magic happens yeah Yeah, it was a very emotional read like I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed reading this book it (laughs) was just it, it really hit hard I think and like what mm-hmm. Rebecca is saying too, it's about more than just history. Like we all had to study history in school. We all know our facts somewhere. They're buried deep in our brains. But this makes everything yeah. being a little bit more real, that it's not just a list of facts, that there were real people in these situations mm-hmm. that had to make these decisions and that had these experiences. And for anyone that is interested in dipping their toe into the water, excuse the pun of this of this genre, <laughs> this is an excellent way to do it. I haven't read an awful lot of historical fiction, but it has definitely ignited a spark in me to to want to keep reading more of it because it it was okay. absolutely impossible to put down. And I know that from the people that I've spoken to that have read the book, we've all had the exact same experience. Like I stayed up late one night trying to finish it I couldn't go to sleep and then waking himself <laughs> up with me crying grabbing more tissues you know <laughs> it's and destroying everyone's sleep all over the place and I think you know it's funny that you say that about you know history I think we were talking about mm-hmm. this the other night that the history we learn in school is very dry and stuffy and lists and dates and things to yeah. remember and it's very um it's just boring and and you forget that this it's not just dates and pictures it it, it is real human mm. lives and and i think that's yeah. to me the brilliant thing about historical fiction really it's just you take the historical out it's just fiction but it's just instead of it being set now it's set in a di- in a different time um and to me that lends something extra mm. but i think people who aren't yet reading historical fiction don't be put off by the historical bit because really that's almost it's just texture in the story um and and ultimately you should not be conscious that you're it's not like it's a history lesson on the page it's just a world that's built around as we were saying you know characters you care about and a great story and and I love it when I I meet people who haven't read much historical fiction and they're like oh now I'm in I'm in now give me more (laughs) yeah I don't read enough of it and it's a genre I genuinely do enjoy um and when I especially will say yours was the last one I had read in that genre and I'm like I just want to read more you know I'm like why don't I read it more regularly and like like that now I have loads of books on my shelves that fit into the category I just need to reach for them over over other things because I enjoy them so much I think me is slightly worried like that other historical fiction Books won't live up to this kind of an experience, and then oh well, they probably won't. They probably won't now. Yeah. <laughs> probably traumatizing this much. 
<laughs> you know that like you you think um, that you, oh you might really like it and then you might read a couple of books that are just not the same and kind of back away yeah, from it a bit more but yeah. yeah but even the one I think that yeah you know, we all we all pick up a book don't we with with hope yeah. uh, you know that either we've read the jacket blurb and we we like the sound of it or somebody's recommended it to us you know it, it's a very personal thing that's why I find it really hard to say you know what's a book uh, everybody should read or you know what is it you're recommending because I think it, it it's like anything I mean sometimes I want rosé wine sometimes I want Ribena, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 what mood are you in? Not very often. It's usually rosé, yeah. to be honest. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, sometimes we can feel that we're held hostage by expectation mm. or yeah. other people's recommendations. And it's like, read what you want to read. And, and if, like, I struggled, I mentioned at the beginning, Kate Atkinson's Life After Life. My sister gave me that book years ago and it was on the, well, it was on the floor, let's be honest, by the side of my bed, gathering dust. And I only picked it up uh, two years ago in in January and it's a big book and I read it in, for me, really quickly, about maybe a week. And it is one of my all-time favourite books. It's a masterpiece. It's incredible. I can't believe I nearly didn't read it, but I had tried several times and it just didn't get me, didn't couldn't get into it and then that one time I picked it up and I couldn't put it down so it's just you know you find a book when you're meant to read it I think is what I and was there any specific well so obviously you've written quite a lot of a variety of books now at this stage both yourself and with your your co-writer but is there any event or figure that you found particularly challenging to write about and how did you overcome that um I don't know if any has been more challenging. Actually, when I wrote The Cottingley Secret, and as I was writing that book, I inadvertently made contact with um, a living relative of one of the characters oh, wow. that I was writing about. Well, a real, a real person, yeah. So that's a story about two little girls in Yorkshire who claimed to have seen fairies, and this took, became a national oh, yes. um, interest story yeah. at the time, in the 1920s. Yeah, and uh, I made contact with the uh, daughter of one of those little girls as an adult. Wow. And it kind of frightened me because suddenly I felt, oh, I, I'm making up stuff about your mother. And yeah. I really now feel quite uncomfortable yeah. doing that. Actually, we ended up meeting. She lived in Belfast and we met and she was so thrilled that a Yorkshire lass was ah. telling her mother's story. So I was very lucky as it turned out. But I that I felt a little bit more close to reality than yeah. I possibly wanted to be. Yeah. So that was slightly difficult, but it, it I was very lucky as it worked out that the, the, the lady was very supportive. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. And I, like, I was just going to ask, I was like, oh, what would you have done if she said like, oh no, please don't. But I, I yeah. suppose until it's you're in the situation, you kind of don't know how you'd react. Yeah. No, because ultimately, you know, you're writing and I suppose it, people have written stories um, that do connect with a family or a living descendant and that the living relative doesn't approve. And, it, it, you know, the work goes out with that family's non-approval and that can yeah. be really difficult. So, yeah, I've, I've it, it was difficult for a p- period, but it, actually she was so very, very kind and generous about sharing details of her mother's life that it really, in the end, was very helpful. 
Um, But yeah, it can be a tricky balancing act. I think definitely just understanding what you want to do with the story and sort of being clear about that from the beginning and sort of sticking to what you want to do, trusting yourself. As I say, I always want to start from a point of respect anyway. I never set out to write anything sort of sensational or shocking truth about, um, which, which could rattle people and would very much you know upset me if somebody started digging into my history yeah. in that way but yeah so it's it's generally been okay okay that kind of ties That's in with the, with one of our following questions about um ethical considerations are there any ethical considerations or responsibilities that you feel when you're portraying real historical events and figures and how do you navigate them then well, I think, again, it's as I say, I, I I think you've just got to be sort of be mindful of the fact that you are writing a story like with The Last Lifeboat. I was very conscious of the fact that I have written a fictionalized version of real events that for people who lived through them were extremely mm. distressing. Um so once that's there, and I and I think if you can then carry that sense of respect through your work, um, but it is a historical novel. It's not a factual account, which is very, very different. And I did research this book, reading lots of factual accounts of the sea evacuees, of um, the, the memories of those who were on that ship, um, you know, accounts of the children who then grew up and wanted to talk about what had happened. That's very different um, to me creating fictional characters, fictional names. You know, none of the real names are used in this book. Similarly with The Girl Who Came Home, my first book about the Titanic, I created a fictional group of characters who went on that ship. So, again, it's, it's sort of giving yourself that space to write fiction but with the sort of backdrop of being sensitive to the fact that this did actually happen so you do have to have authenticity um you know and just make clear decisions about how far are you going to go with filling in those gaps in the historical record or not you know sticking very closely to the truth have you ever received any feedback or criticism as regards your representation of historical events? Yes, I'm going to give you a corker now. So when I wrote the, so I wrote the girl who came home, and it was my debut novel, and you know I was quite terrified about Titanic experts finding absolute flaws in my description of the ship, and they couldn't possibly have been on B deck, and that wasn't you know. So I was really careful about studying maps of the layout of the ship and decks and how did you get from here to there and anyway so total novice you know I've never written a book I've never well never published a book before so I wasn't quite prepared for reactions of people and part of the girl who came home is set in 1980 when um the granddaughter of one of the people who was on the Titanic wants to write her grandmother's story um and anyway, I talk a little bit about my character, Grace, in her bedroom in Chicago in, in the 1980s. And one one scene, I don't know why, I've never done it again. I described her bedroom and I said there was a Bon Jovi poster on the wall. But I, I specified the album 
that it was. And a reader sent me a message and said, well, I quite enjoyed your novel about the Titanic, but um, unfortunately I was very disappointed because I think it was <laughs> what Slippery When Wet was not out in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> like, of all the things... <laughs> All the things I could have got wrong. Oh, yeah. Titanic's the <laughs> bottom. <laughs> it was the wrong Bon Jovi oh, album. Oh. It had nothing to do with the story, really, whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned my oh. lesson, and now I'm like, don't reference if albums. It if it's not needed, don't put it. Yeah. yeah. No, don't put it in. <laughs> I'll never That's forget brilliant. that. Yeah. I mean, Bon Jovi tripping me yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you go. Yes, it happened. They must have been a, like a super fan to really feel the need to contact yeah. you to, yeah. to point that out. Yeah. Well, you see, I think, and this is the thing, when you dip it, and obviously each book I've written, I'm, a, I'm an expert for a period of time and then I move into another book. So I never claim to be, I'm, you know, if James Cameron can admit to mistakes in the Oscar-winning movie of Titanic, then, you know, far be it from me to be, perfect and I think I've just become more at peace with that you know it's like yeah. guys I did my best yeah. you know and I hope I hope that tiny tiny detail didn't ruin the whole book <laughs> <laughs> we're only human right you should issue a recall <laughs> I'm like fair enough if I have someone getting into a car in in Victorian London you know and it's sort of yeah turning on turning on a, a you know Spotify oh, yeah <laughs> fair cop <laughs> oh that's brilliant and yeah I know. Say the, the writing process in general how do you find it how does it work with your when you when you co-write co the books um your book actually anytime anyone looks for a book set around either christmas or an epist I, i'm going to pronounce this wrong an epistolary <laughs> yeah um yeah. novel which i love i love those styles of, styles of books i always recommend um last christmas in paris I adore that book. And actually it was only in the last few days I realized that that was one of your books. And I was like, oh, this is this is a fabulous um turn of events. You can't get away from me. I'm everywhere. Um but how do you find yeah, how do you find the writing process with and how did that come about? You know, the two of you writing together? Yeah, with Heather, with Heather Webb. So we were connected many years ago. We have the same agent in the States and, and she connected us and said, look, you're both writing history. You both have a first novel coming out. This was back in 2014. You, you might help each other. And we just hit it off. Heather then asked me to contribute to an anthology about the First World War called Fall of Poppies which I did. I went on a little book tour to the States and met her. We got on like a house on fire. Um, and I said, sure, I quite enjoyed digging around in World War One. Do you want to write, uh, should we do another anthology? And I was like, no, never again. It was really complicated to get nine, nine authors to contribute to this book. But she said, I would write something with you. And I was like, oh, okay, I'd never thought about that. So very quickly, we brainstormed what became Last Christmas in Paris, which is a story written in letters, as you say, between Tom at the front, Evie in, in England, and this childhood friendship that Anyway, I won't say too much because spoilers, but that was our first novel and it sort of came out of nowhere and we loved doing it. So we then wrote Meet Me in Monaco about Grace Kelly's wedding in uh, and that sort of fairy tale Hollywood world. Then we wrote Three Words for Goodbye about three sisters on the sort of era just before the Second World War, uh, traveling around Europe, which was great fun. 
And we're currently writing Christmas with the Queen, which is about the late Queen Elizabeth II's famous traditional Christmas speeches on Christmas Day and and how she sort of brings a couple, a, a, a chef and a BBC okay. reporter together at Christmas time around the royal tradition. So, yeah, that's what we're working on now. So it's just been brilliant. We... We write together on Google Docs. We kind of use the time difference to our advantage. Oh, yes. And we just love it. And we've said we'll keep doing it as long as we're having fun. You know, there's no obligation. There's no, we have to. It's just, can we, if we have another idea and we want to do it, we will. And we're having great fun. (laughs) That's a nice way to kind of change things up as well, you know. like, And I like as well just hearing the way that you've built a community of support around yourself that it's like because writing is a very solitary yeah. activity so to have that kind of a sense of community and support is really it's it seems like a really nice way to to yeah. keep yourself going because I would imagine yeah. does it get quite lonely yes and no I mean I think I'm I'm sort of very I'm very busy thankfully so you kind of almost don't have time to to get lonely and it's almost like you know it's the joy of having a bit of peace and quiet to yeah. get to the desk mm-hmm. and and write so it, you're in your head a lot so I think it's really important to have those other outlets of other writing friends um to get out of your own head um you know and sort of you know cop yourself on and and you know come back down to reality a bit um and it's really nice to have people to bounce ideas off as well so Heather and I do a lot of brainstorming on our own individual stuff with each other as well as our joint stuff um as I do with Catherine and Carmel and I think that's what's lovely about that is you've got someone to just be in your corner um when things are going well when things are not going so well um and just have that sort of creative chat so yeah it's been really lovely actually to make those connections just even linking up with people that have the same interests like on Instagram for us finding other people that have the same passion and the same the same level of interest in reading and literature mm. and stuff has been really wholesome yeah um, and a very kind of an affirming process to to be making and forging these friendships within such what, what word am I trying to think of like an it's a very powerful community too, do you know? Yeah. I remember when I was younger and like even my, I've got two younger brothers and they could never get why I would like to sit up in my room and read a book. And I'm always the one that they're like, oh, go, Claire loves reading and stuff. And sometimes I, it's like, is there something wrong with me that I'm the only one that seems <laughs> to love it this much? <laughs> but it's lovely to see that there's a whole community of people that, you know, are like-minded and stuff as yeah, well. absolutely and I think whenever you find a passion for something it's just great isn't it to find other people mm. that are as passionate or as interested and it it just gives you that outlet to you know sort of talk and say what well, did you read this and what do you think about that and yeah. it's, it's, you, you're excited about it so it is nice when you connect with other people who share that mindset yeah it's lovely absolutely um can we ask you about just books in general? Like what kind of a role do you think that books and literature play in society? And why would you think that they're still relevant in today's kind of digital age? 
there's nothing like picking up a good book. Ah, yeah. 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 And I, you know, and I think books will always have a place, you know, there was a, there was a period of time where people thought hardbacks were, were gone, you know, it's like the vinyl revival. Yeah. And people find stuff again. It, and, and books are, as I said earlier, that they're, they're, they're never going away. If you don't want to read this book today, you'll, you might read it in a year's time. And I think of course, formats are changing. So we've got digital books, we've got audio books, We've got different ways of reading books now. Books are very transportable in all of those formats, which mm. is brilliant. So we can take them wherever. And, and I just, you know, I think trends change um, and, and rightly so. Uh, reading habits change. And I think as we each go through different stages of life, our reading habits change. But I think I'd like to think anyway, books aren't going anywhere. They're an amazing form of entertainment often everything we're watching on streaming services yeah. has come from a book. So, you know, that writing talent and maybe writing might end up being more towards a, an on-screen production, but there'll still need to be the writing talent there in the first place. Um, and I think, as I said earlier, you know, I think people can get too precious and I have absolutely no time for literary snobbery. I just can't be dealing with it at all when people are like, oh, well, you have to read certain things. And it's like, you just read Read what you want to read. Read what entertains you. What what you know gets you excited or, or makes you cry. Um, there's no right or wrong. There's no guilty pleasure. I don't ascribe to any of that. And and I think they allow us to just walk in someone else's shoes. And I think we can learn a lot. We can be more empathetic about different people, cultures, um, different ways of living that we don't understand otherwise. So it's like any form of media. If we embrace it, we can be entertained whilst also maybe learning something about another person's outlook in life. Um, and, and yeah, I think books are really where that all started. You know, obviously more modern forms of media have developed from that, but um and if you don't want to pick up a physical book, listen to an audio book whilst you're in the car. You know, you don't have to actually sit there with it clutching a <laughs> clutching a big hardback. If that's not your thing, you know, listen to a book. It's the same story. It's just in a different format that maybe appeals to you. So if I'd say if someone's in a reading slump, you know, if you've if you've not read a hardback for a while, go and read a hardback. Get one with lovely sprayed edges or you know, go and read some short stories, a little collection of short stories, pick up a poetry book, um, you know, change your genre, go and listen to an audio book that finds something. We get all bored, don't yeah. we, if we do the same thing all the time. So just mix it up and, and sort of find your way back in again. And the fact again. that you can do that within reading, that there are so many options, is a testament to it yeah. anyway. No, it's not It's not a, yeah, a one-size-fits-all thing yeah, at all. Like there's only one way to watch a movie. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And sometimes you just need a bit of a reset. So you might think, oh, I can't, I'm, I'm in a massive reading slump. So maybe try an audio book and that just might get that love of story back. And then you can go mad in your local independent bookshop and buy everything. <laughs> <laughs> Such as the last life book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, other yeah. books are available. Yeah, there's a whole back catalogue there. And actually that's a lovely thing. Um, for maybe someone who is picking up your book, what we'll say this book and it being the first book that there is a wonderful back catalogue there for yeah. them to get through. Like that's actually a lovely thing as a reader mm -hmm. to realise I have a lot of books from this author to 
dip into now if I wish you know when you find something you like having the option to to get more kind of immediately is a very gratifying thing so yeah yes absolutely yeah I love that when you pick up I think I did that with Tracy Chevalier with the girl with the pearl earring and I was like she's written all this stuff uh on Hilary Mantel you know the Wolf Hall stuff she wrote loads of stuff before that but yeah, it's, it's, it's actually quite frightening when I open my own book and I'm like, geez, what, how did I do that? What, <laughs> what did they all come from? <laughs> so, yeah, once you find me, you can't get away, I'm afraid now. Great There's complaint. A, <laughs> a great complaint. <laughs> it is, to be fair. And as a writer, would you have any advice for anyone that would be aspiring to write themselves? Yes. Um, and, and my advice is always the same and it's always ridiculously simple. It's just right honestly there's no other way to learn the craft or to figure out what you want to say or to figure out the shape of your story unless you've written it and i think a lot of people abandon this novel they have in them because what comes out in their first attempts is not as good as what's in their head and um, so it's almost giving yourself permission to write a terrible first draft Everybody does it every time because what's in your head is this perfect finished product, but you've got to find that on the page. So don't abandon something because it's not as good as you wanted it to be. Of course it isn't yet. So finish finish your draft, then step back and see what have you got, and then you start the, the real hard work starts. So most books go through at least three, four, maybe five full drafts before it gets to be the book we read so don't abandon it keep going say this is terrible but I'm keeping going anyway um and yeah just keep writing it's the only way to get there I always say I'm going to sit down and write for five minutes and I'm often still there you know at least half an hour 30 minutes 40 minutes an hour two hours later so just say I'll just write get a cup of tea I'll write for five minutes that's my trick (laughs) And do you use any specific software yourself or is it just Microsoft Word and stuff, just typing? Good old Microsoft Word and a a notebook um, to scribble little ideas in every now and again and or several notebooks because I can never find the original one (laughs) I started for this book. So I've always got about eight notebooks with different scrappy bits in. Um, But yeah, I'm not high tech. I'm not one for writing software. I'm just, just, just me and good old Word. Before we finish up, can you give us, and I know you've already given us one tiny little sneak peek, but are there any other sneak peeks or hints about upcoming projects that you've got going on in the background or? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Um, Yeah, I actually can't. I haven't been able to say too much about this yet because it hasn't been officially announced, but I can say that my next solo book um, is a little bit different. So we're going still historical it's going mm-hmm. to be 1930s, uh, Midwest Ooh. America, but it's an origin Ooh. story. Uh, and it's I pitched it to my editor as a story we all know very well, but a woman we don't. Ooh, and that's all okay. I can say. Ooh. So, immediately <laughs> go to Google this. <laughs> Honestly, I'm I'm so excited about when it honestly when I can say you I'm just gonna have to get a tannoy and stand um you know on the top of Dublin Castle because I'm I'm so excited about it. But yeah, I have yeah, that we will all will be revealed. Excellent. 
I am very intrigued to know. Mm. That's that's what our WhatsApp conversation is going to be now, trying to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. We'll send you a message when we think we have it sussed and you can discreetly. I'll give you a thumbs up if you've got it. (laughs) Exactly. Well, we finish all of our interviews with a quick fire round. Oh, my God. Would you be up first? Yes, go on. (laughs) So actually, before we do the quick fire round, maybe you did ask this. Um, I can edit it out if you did. Um, We were were told to ask where you got your lovely dress from. Oh, yes, I didn't ask that question. Sorry. Oh, yeah, (laughs) you didn't ask it. I think the lovely dress should have its own Twitter account. It got so many comments. On it. It's actually from uh, Hobbs in Kildare Village. I've had it, I think I've lovely. had it about a year. Um, so it was one of those on the rack and loved it. Didn't have any occasion to it wear good. it until it was a last week. One. Yeah. So the gooner came Fabulous. out. Yeah. And can I ask another one just before we go to the quickfire? Do you have a favourite character from your own books? That's a hard oh, one now. God. Do you know what? I, I do. Uh, I, I have a real soft spot for my character in The Girl from the Savoy called Dolly Lane. Um, and that was one of my quietest books. And I just love Dolly. And I'd love to hang out with her in 1920s London and, and at the Savoy Hotel and downstairs and drink gin with the other chambermaids. But anyway, she was fun. And Grace Darling from The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter because I knew about Grace Darling's story from being a little girl and I just think she was incredible. Yeah. She's, you know, based on, obviously she was a real person. So yeah, she was amazing to write as well. Okay. Okay. I think we've we've got people's questions that they'd sent in. (laughs) So hopefully, Hobbs now will have like a, their website. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Perfect. So quick fire round. So this or that, feel free to elaborate if you want. Feel free to just answer either or, depending. I'm scared. Go on. Okay, so number one, ebook or audiobook? Audio. Number two, dog ear or bookmark? (laughs) Uh, well, bookmark probably more likely a receipt or some other yeah paper, an envelope. Yeah, uh, very good. Number three, DNF or power through? Oh, I think I'm a power through girl because I feel sorry for the author. So I power through. Yeah, I do. Yeah, reluctantly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number four tag authors in posts or no so we'll say from our point of view as the person reading the book should we tag authors or not oh if you're saying nice things absolutely if you hated it no, <laughs> no. leave us That's be fair. don't 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 wake us up at breakfast with a this was very disappointing and your day is ruined um <laughs> so yeah yeah Bon Jovi did not have an album out that year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky one. But if there's if there's if there's nothing good to say, don't be telling the author about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's fair. fair. Yeah. Uh, number five. I, I have no numbers next to these. Um, t- oh, lend books to friends or no way? Uh, well, yes. But, uh, well, I do have these little library tickets that I've just got recently that I'm going to start putting inside my books because you do. I always lend them to my sister, actually. 
and she lives in England. So then every time I go and see her, she's like, oh, yeah, there's these eight books that I robbed from your house the last time I was there. So I do get them back eventually. <laughs> you miss them, though. Yeah, that's a lot of tickets. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, next one, read one book at a time or multiple on the go? One at a time. Yeah. Unless I'm research, if it's research, loads at, loads at a time. But I'm a, yeah, I'm very monogamous with my reading. I can, I like to just be in one book because this is, you see, because I power through, I have to finish them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're dedicated to the cause. Would you prefer to only read mediocre books forever or one <laughs> stunning book once a year? That's brilliant. <laughs> Well, I'd, I'd go with one stunner once a year definitely yeah yeah um would you, you prefer to only read the first page of a book or just the last one oh first uh yeah first page because then if you read the last page you don't know why that is why it is so I think the first page I mean that's a terrible question <laughs> <laughs> it's an awful like it, it's an awful situation to be in yeah um, situation where is this place we're living number nine yeah um would you have an actor you don't really like play the lead in an adaptation of your book or have an actor that you love turn down the role Oh my god, that's a brilliant question. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I don't know. What how would that's an absolute dilemma? If you had someone Yeah. Hmm, well, if you had someone you love turn it down, but then someone you're not so keen on takes the role. Oh, I don't know. I can't I don't know. What would you do? Race and leading them. Well, you wouldn't yeah. want, you wouldn't say no, would you? Would you say no to an adaptation? I mean, it's the dream, let's be honest. I'm sure I could get over it. I'm yeah. sure I'd get over them. <laughs> just to, see, just to yeah. see it on the screen. Yeah, we'll go with it. Want to be able to be in the position for that dilemma. I be no, so, I'm totally ruthless yeah. here now. Yeah, no, we can have yeah. someone I don't like. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and last question. Uh, which place do you prefer? Yorkshire? Or Ireland? No. <laughs> I, I couldn't even come up with a specific place in Ireland because I'm not sure where you live. So I was like, oh, Ireland is a whole. I mean, are you trying to get me cancelled? <laughs> no. Do you know what? I'll be very honest. When I'm in, in whichever place is where I love the most. So there you go. That's so when I'm in Ireland, I love good. Ireland the most. And when okay. I'm in Yorkshire, I love Yorkshire the most. That's a good answer. And do you get back to to England a lot? Yeah, reasonably enough. Um, I'm heading over on Wednesday, actually. I'm doing a little book tour. So I'm going to be around Yorkshire. I'm going to be in Leeds, Harrogate, York. I'm doing an event with a lovely bookshop in Brig in North Lincolnshire. And then I'm heading down to London to do an event uh, with the Historical Writers Association. Oh, oh, wow. And I'm heading down to Kent to a few bookshops. But I'm going to be back in, in Yorkshire. So I'm very excited about getting a fat rascal from Betty's Tea Rooms uh, while I'm there. It's a little cake. Oh, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll put a picture of it on Instagram Ooh. so you can you know what I'm talking about. 
but yeah, it's it's just um, I love. I think when you know, whenever you go back to where you grew up, there's that nostalgia, isn't there? And that little sense. So we overlapped. That's, that's our what problem. <laughs> yeah, that's well. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I never left Yorkshire, really. Part of me, but I'm um, I'm fully Irish now. I'm an Irish citizen now, and I'm I'm here 22 oh, wow. years. Yeah. I mean, everything mad has happened to me in my life here, so here in Ireland. So, Ireland. My husband's Irish. Yeah, so it was for love. Yeah. Oh. Oh. It was oh. for love, yeah. Yeah, good old romantic love story. And I'm here 22 years and clearly haven't picked up the <laughs> accent at all. Um, but I, I always call, I call Ireland home and I call Yorkshire home yes. home. That's how I kind of differentiate. So when I'm flying back from a holiday and I see uh, Dublin, you know, it's like, ah, oh, I'm home. But when I go back to York next week, I'm going to get all yeah. nostalgic. So I'll be like, I'm home, home. <laughs> lovely. Very complicated. It's lovely to have that <laughs> attachment, though, to, to a few places. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm very lucky. And the fat rascals, I tell you, I can't get them in Ireland. Yeah, so. I've never heard of them before in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued. This is another thing we well, will be Googling later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Get a, get a fat rascal, there you are. Fabulous. Well, that's, that is all of our questions, um, I think. Oh, thank you, ladies. That was terrifying at the end, but I can't, you know, moral dilemmas all over yeah, the place. Enjoy it. And we can't give you those ones in advance, to be fair, so. Yeah, you could, no, that would, yeah, I wouldn't have yeah. agreed to the interview at all. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, we have yet for someone to say, no, I do not wish to do it. So we... We always yeah with this part. Yeah. It's like on the um, I don't know if you listen to the podcast off menu uh, with Ed Gamble and James Acaster, and oh, they have yeah. guests on talking about their dream restaurant, and perfect start to main course dessert. But they always have a secret ingredient at the beginning of the show, and if the guest mentions it, they have to stop the interview immediately. Oh. And I'm like, what? And they have like massive celebrities on, so I'm like, what if you? Like what if they said fish cakes halfway through and you'd have to stop <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Well, you should start doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Pick a random a random word and sorry. Interview over. Yeah. Mystery word, yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. Philippa Gregory. <laughs> oh. Thank Thank you so much, much for taking the time to come and speak to us. Oh, thank you. That was great fun. Really appreciate it. And thanks again for coming up on Thursday. It was was so lovely to see you there. And this was great fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making us cry. And Uh, you're very anytime. Anytime. Very welcome. (laughs) Plenty more where that came from. (laughs) Thanks very much. Take care, ladies. Lots of love. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Another Chapter Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like and share to keep the book conversation going. Thank you to Helen Becerra for the graphics, Mark Neville for the mixing and to each of our contributors. Music is Make It Work by All Good Folks. Don't forget to follow along on Instagram at Another Chapter Podcast. We'll see you there.